There's an old adage adopted from a Thomas Wolfe novel that states, you can never go home again. Why? Well, for many, the answer would be change. To return to a place after you've truly lived it could be a disappointment, for it wouldn't be the same and neither would you. Unless, of course, the concept of home was less of a static location and more of a feeling or frame of mind. Today's guest, Phil Weingartner, believes that you can go home again in ever more fulfilling and new ways. Phil first trekked with the inaugural group of Kit Carson men in 1968. He returned and worked on staff in the 60s and 70s. From 2014 on, he's been heavily involved with the PSA, and this summer, he completed his 14th PSA trek. As a ranger on staff in 69, Phil appreciated and enjoyed the exposure to diversity, guiding crews from all over the country. The rest of his tenure was spent in the backcountry, namely the two summers he was seedy at fish camp, back when the hot water heater, shower, and flushing toilet was still functioning. Phil shares many stories, including the two-year concrete removal project and the epic New Year's fish fry. In the second portion of his interview, Phil highlights the rewarding work of being involved with the Philmont Staff Association, where his Philmont family has grown exponentially. He specifically discusses a behind-the-scenes take on volunteer vacation and fill break, both of which are an economical and worthwhile way to visit the ranch and give back. In Philmont nomenclature, the word HOME is an acronym standing for Heaven on Earth. So for those of you who have returned home to the ranch, does nostalgia cause us to view the past with rose-colored glasses? Has change taken a toll? Or have your visits home been a continuation of the limitless impact of Philmont in your life? For me, the latter is ever more true and unfolding. And with that, to everyone currently partaking in this year's volunteer vacation happening now at the ranch, please enjoy it for me until I can enjoy it someday for myself. Guys, I'm here today with Phil Weingardner, and Phil, you, you've you got a really cool experience because you were a participant in 1968 with the Kit Carson Men Program, and then you were on staff for, let's see, six, six. summers. Yeah, six beautiful <laughs> summers. Um, and then since then, you've done tremendous amount of work and engagement and volunteering for the Philmont Staff Association. So excited to talk to you today. How are you? I'm great. So happy to be here. I've listened to not all of your podcasts, but boy, they are just great. Everybody talks about them. And uh, somebody the other day said, I listened every Tuesday morning. I listened to it at work. So (laughs) happy to be a part of it. Thank you. It's so good to hear. It always means so much when people message me or text me or get a hold of me in some way and just say, you know, I'm enjoying the show. And I just had Brad Plum on the show. I know you guys are good friends because he lives in Overland Park, Kansas, and so do you. And you guys have been training together 
Oh well, yeah, it's it's actually another another person that treks with us here in town, uh, Doctor Russ. When he trekked with us about ten years ago, he said, "Well, I, I go to the local stadium, and it's uh, Shawnee Mission North, and they have a big open stadium that's never closed and big bleachers." So. Uh, he said, that's where I go. And so now that's what we do. We go over there with full backpacks and up and down, up and down for about an hour. And uh, we feel pretty good or pretty tired when we're done. So it's impressive. I told Brad the other day in the email, I, I said, when I finally get out there and trek with the PSA, I'm going to reach out to him and you guys and say, OK, what's your, what's the training regiment? What should I be doing? <laughs> so it's impressive. Uh, the reunion gets over on Sunday morning. I believe that's the 24th. And uh, the trek starts that Sunday morning. Everybody meets at the Welcome Center. And uh, sometimes it's people coming together that have never met before. That's kind of one of the nice things about the PSA treks. But uh, then we're just considered, from that point on, we're just a regular crew, just like the scouts. We happen to do a you know, it's a seven-day trek, so two nights in base and then five nights out on the trail. We get no special privileges other than the fact that we get to design our own itinerary, and that's that's pretty special. We like that. So uh, yeah, it gives us a lot of freedom to go places we want to go and do some crazy things. So, yeah, and this will be your 15th PSA trek or 14th. Yeah. Yeah, 14th PSA track, and then I've done a couple autumn adventures also. Congratulations. That's a lot of <laughs> of trekking at Philmont. Is there anywhere on the ranch you have not been? Just curious. I don't think so. You know, they, they keep creating new trail camps. So there's a few, there's a handful of those trail camps that I haven't been to, but uh, I've covered just about all of it. And uh, when I was working out there, the buy of it all didn't exist. I mean, we didn't go there or anything, but of course now it's there, it's an option. And since we've covered so much of traditional Philmont, we've spent a lot of time up in the Baya and it's, it's beautiful up there. It's really nice. And it, uh, you have a little more freedom up there. Uh, sometimes you can rendezvous have vehicles up there because it's so big it helps you get across to a farther point of the the via so yeah been sure. just about everywhere when i was interviewing um pete burgundy who used to do cabin restoration at philmont uh, we talked a little bit about i think it was at clayton clayton cabins or clayton corrals up in the valle and he sent some photos of a cabin they were restoring up there and it was just breathtaking. It looked like somewhere in like Scotland or uh, just these rolling hills. And so, yeah, the Valle is a really special part of Philmont. That yeah. Clayton cabin, we've been down to that place twice and it is, it's just, it's unreal. It's unreal. <laughs> it's just yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So your first experience at Philmont was in 1968. You were a participant with the Kit Carson men program. Like I mentioned, was that your first introduction to Philmont? Very first, I uh, I had I I had a fantastic troop, scoutmaster, everything, but Philmont just wasn't mentioned. I really didn't didn't know much of anything about it. We did do Northern Tier once, but uh, I I got uh, selected to participate in a program called Report to the Nation. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but. It's been going on with the Boy Scouts since 1917, where 
they take a handful of scouts and you present the year's history to Congress. So back in 68, when I did that, you had to compete and there were regions and levels and I worked my way up. Now, I never made it all the way to to the people that went to uh, D.C., but it put me, I guess, on a list somewhere. And then when they started uh, the Kit Carson men in 1968, the very first year, they were looking for people. And I guess they saw that list. And that's where I got the invite. And uh, that's how I heard about it and talked to my scoutmaster. And of course, he knew about Philmont. He just never got us out there and told me all the good things. And money was tight, but my parents uh, managed to say, yes, you can do it. And then a couple of weeks later, Philmont made it free. It was like a scholarship. So that was even better. So yeah. anyway, out I came in August of 68. So I was real green, real green. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> How old were you? Uh, 16, 16. Yeah. So, uh, we had a great crew. I remember my training ranger or my KCM ranger. And of course, I think everybody knows KCM is now Ray Otto, but, uh, that's what it was back then. Mike Barrett. And we had eight or nine, no, 10 people from all over the country. I was just, I was just amazed at the differences and scouts and just getting exposed to the world as opposed to little old Atchison, Kansas, which is, was my hometown at the, at that time. So it was yeah. just a great experience. I have my map today that traced where we went and I just don't remember much of it. <laughs> I say, oh, I was there and just things I don't remember. There's a lot I do remember, but uh, it was just a fantastic experience. It was good and bad. I, I, I was probably too young because I was 16, but they were hiring KCM people right off the trail. But I did it in August. And so by the time we were done, the, the season was almost over. But because of that, they said, you know, are you interested in coming back next year? And I said, yes. And that's that's how it all started. That's pretty incredible to be 16 years old and just, you know, coming from Kansas to the mountains. And did you drive yourself out there? Oh, no, I came out on a bus. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it was, uh, that was an experience in itself. It took forever <laughs> and uh, some strange people on the bus. And then when I came home, I got back to Topeka, Kansas at like three in the morning. And my dad, who was in radio, had to put the radio station on the air so they couldn't pick me up. So I had to get a hotel room in downtown Topeka, Kansas. And it was an adventure. <laughs> so you came back in 1969 as a ranger. You would have been 17 years old. Right. What was your first year on staff like? Over the two years as a ranger and training ranger, I had about 20 crews total. And every crew was different. I really enjoyed just uh, the variety of meeting people. I mean, again, from a small town, Central America, Kansas, just to be exposed to the to the world or to the U.S., it was real interesting. I, we had some we had some definite. I remember one. Uh, I want to. A uh, pretty redneck crew, and I was kind of startled at their thought process on stuff. But I really had some great crews that uh, were just real, real fun to be with. And uh, I didn't have a bad experience at all. Just uh, good times. <laughs> good yeah. times. 
Do you remember anyone from those first few years on staff in the ranger department specifically that uh, you just really bonded with or someone that mentored you? Probably Bill Shriver. I don't know if you've heard Bill Shriver's name and just a great guy, but uh, he did KCM in 68, just like I did, except he was in the first session in, I think, middle of June. So he did get hired off the trail. So he had an advantage. I mean, he had one year on me, but uh, we were just great friends pretty much from the start. And we kind of followed each, I mean, I kind of followed him. I mean, he, after rangering, uh, you know, he got into the back country. I did the same. And I even convinced him to come out and trek with us here a while back, a few years ago. So speaking of your era, I might be way off here, but when was the, the big flood at fish camp? That was 65. 65. So a couple years before you were out there, that happened because then you were camp director at fish camp in 71 and 72. So what was the landscape like at fish camp? Could you tell still, I assume? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it looked a lot different than it does today. Let's begin my, uh, my two hours of fish camp stories. Here. Let's do uh, it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned, I, I, I got to backtrack just for a second. Sure. I mentioned Bill Shriver, but you know, I had the privilege and the honor to work for Joe Davis and Clarence Dunn. Mr. Dunn was the chief ranger. And of course, Joe Davis is a legend. So I, f- I felt remiss not mentioning those two names. So I just had sure. to throw that back in back to fish camp. Uh, it was it was really just that entire if you've been to fish camp now it's pretty well grown up looking out from the cabin down down the rayado but it was just rock it was just nothing but rock um they used to have at fish camp they used to have uh, the red roof ends were on regular cement platforms i mean they were full time structures big time structures but the the flood just destroyed these red roof ends. And so there were concrete, big, gigantic pieces of concrete still scattered around. You look out from the from the porch there at fish camp and you'd see that concrete. So that was uh, really the makings of my uh, scheme, uh, whatever, to stay at fish camp for two summers, which is not normal. I don't know anybody that's done fish camp for two summers and I brag about it a lot but uh, what we did that first year is and we we thought it up on our own I think Dave Caffey who was our sector director or backcountry manager um, he helped us out a lot with kind of putting it all together but we came up with the idea of well let's get rid of all that concrete so Conservation projects were a little looser back then. But anyway, the the short story is we requested sledgehammers, hard hats, safety goggles from, you know, from the backcountry warehouse. They sent them all out and we started allowing the scouts to go out there and bust up that concrete into little small pieces. And at the time, uh, Fish Camp was a commissary. It was a commissary for quite a while. This is long before Phillips Junction. And it was a a busy commissary. Everything was over in the guest cabin. We had two or three contracts a week, just a lot of activity. So 
we came up with the plan that they bust up the concrete, they put it in the food boxes that were emptied out as we gave out the trail food. The scouts hauled it up to the front porch of fish camp, and we just stocked, stacked up boxes and boxes of concrete. And then when the comm truck came in, they'd unload the food and we'd load them up with concrete. And we did that all summer. It was great, but we didn't get it all done. So the end of the year, when I wrote up my report, I said, I think I need to come back and finish this project. And uh, Philmont bought into it. <laughs> so I came back and uh, we did it again. And we did. We get we got rid of all the concrete. I don't think you'll find any uh, Red Roof Inn remains out there now. So sure. uh, the old style, I should say. That's hard work to do all that. So that's good for well, you we and all those. Well, we have the scouts doing crew- it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure it really helped the view. And I'm sure like safety-wise too, you don't want tons of concrete lying around. In that flood, I recall someone told me like, did it take off the original kitchen of fish camp? Yes, exactly. That's It just ripped it clean. Uh, the rest, I mean, if if you've been in the cabin, I would imagine when you go from the dining room into the kitchen that that was just boom you're looking down at the rayado and i didn't see it of course i wasn't there at the time but i've seen enough i've done enough research and seen enough pictures that's exactly how it was but that's the only thing it did to the cabin it did away with some of the little tack barns and stuff up the creek but that that was the main damage and of course just destroying the entire valley uh, down below I was actually camp director there as well. Uh, you and, were? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't was, know that. Yeah, it was my first first year <laughs> as a camp director. Uh, what two, year? 2010. Oh, my. Well, yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, so I I love that you were there for two summers. I, I still miss falling asleep to the sound of the Rayado and just how surprisingly comforting it was to kind of be down in that canyon with the rock wall behind the cabin. And it was just this little... It just felt really down in that valley, and I I loved that about fish camp. So, did you did you sleep in the back bedroom? Yeah, yep. Yeah, with the door open. I mean, the the yeah. Dutch door, and yep. always had it open. Yeah, yep. that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, okay, so you said your two hour long um, diatribe of fish camp stories. So, what else can you tell me about your two summers there? You just recently had Brad Plum on, and he talked about how rough he had it and how he was out there at Clear Creek and living off the land and putting (laughs) his food in the creek. And I just was totally opposite. You know, I was here at fish camp and all my, my four years in the back country, I never roughed it at all. I had the good life, but most people, and maybe you don't realize this, but when I was there in uh, 70 and I mean, uh, 71 and 72, the bathroom was still fully functional. Oh, there was a flushing toilet. We, wow. didn't, know where, we didn't know where stuff went. We assumed <laughs> there's a septic tank out there somewhere, but even better, there was a hot water heater, gas fed. There was a shower what? laboratory. Yes. That all worked. So that was all functioning because it was just yeah. empty was- and. Closed no, yeah, up, yeah. yeah. Oh Both my gosh. Years. I mean, fancy. 
we all showers every morning. It was just routine that you had a shower every morning. We had the generator out back and uh, gave us lights. We had the gas refrigerator. We had the gas stove. Uh, it was it was a good <laughs> life. <laughs> How many people were on staff? Your years? Uh, uh, just three and sometimes, first year was just three. We had one person running commissary, one person doing program, and then myself doing cabin tours and selling fishing license. That's <laughs> That seemed to occupy all my activity. We didn't have a lot of campers. Uh, it was big commissary, a lot of activity during the day, but then pretty quiet in the evenings. I mean, we would have campers, but not not very many. And then the the second year we did have a fourth person in there at times. So okay, and so the pro so it was commissary, fly fishing. Did did you do fly tying too? Yes, uh-huh. okay. fly tying, and then right. cabin tours. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you and you guys all slept in the main cabin? I assume. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> cool. Had the big uh, leather cushions in the main room. Uh, we had advisors coffee hour in there. Quite often, you know, the advisors fell asleep and you'd, you'd have to wake them up and send them <laughs> home. Things like that. That was common. Yeah. Uh, had the bearskin rug in the middle. Uh, it was in, it was in really, everything was in great shape. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love it. It's sending me back to um, uh, in the evenings in 2010 when I was there, we would I guess we did advisors coffee on the porch and then we had sort of evening program where we would invite the scouts in to play cards, card games. And I think they still do that today in chess. Uh-huh. And I just remember one of my favorite parts of every evening was kind of lighting the fires and lighting all the oil lamps and, and just the cabin oh, yeah. comes, comes alive with this glow at night. And then you invite everyone in and it's so warm in, exactly. its, in its energy. Um, and it's a really fun evening program because it's so low key, you know, you're not putting on a show, you're just playing games and conversing. And I loved that about fish camp. So that's what it was. Exactly. Yeah. We did have the, I mentioned the generator, but that was just to do our check-in on radio, but we'd have it turned off by the time the advisors showed up. So yeah, it was very, very nice. So we enjoyed that. There's, uh, you may be the perpetrator of this, but we took a tour recently and uh, we go into the first bedroom and the staff person points to the uh, where the crawl space is underneath the floor. And they say that was a tunnel that Wade Phillips had built to go underneath the Aquafria over to the guest cabin. And I go, where in the world did that come <laughs> from? You know, you didn't tell that story, did you? I don't think so. I remember, <laughs> I think we at one point put some like fake gold coins in there and we'd open it up and say surprise um but no i don't know if i've ever done that one on a tour but that's pretty funny no i just yeah i adore that camp i know a lot of people do it's a special place well now that i know that you worked there i've got to ask you did you ever go up to lagrula up to lagrula lake and lagrula mesa up in that area no oh no what did i miss out on well you know when you go up the aquafria you've got but three or four campsites. Yeah. And I think it's the second one on the left. And there's a, a valley that comes down from, from the south. Okay. And that valley goes up 
to La Grula, which is on the UU bar. And uh, it was the original trail or path where they brought in a lot of supplies to build the fish camp complex. They brought them, drug them down the hillside. So there's a trail there that is just straight up and down. It's not it's not that bad of a trail, but uh, I, Dave Caffey told me about it. You know, the when he dropped us off, he said, "Be sure and go up to La Grula. It's beautiful." So the trail was kind of hard to find. It had been overgrown, and of course, it takes you off the ranch, and that was a no no. But uh, we went up there constantly, and uh, just elk almost always find elk up there. It's a huge, huge, gigantic, you know, mountain meadow. Wow. uh, By by my time, I guess they weren't telling folks about it. I had no idea. I'm going to have to get a hop on Google Maps and zoom in and find that. uh, We did a PSA trek in 2006 and we come into the camp and the camp director was a person you might know, Anne-Marie Kaufman. Did you ever know her? Yes. I think she was one of the greatest fish camp directors ever. And she comes up and greets us and says, you're having dinner with us, aren't you? And we said, well, sure. You know, (laughs) our PSA crew was small. There was only seven of us, I think. But anyway, during the course of the evening, I said, have you been up to La Grula? And kind of just like you, she didn't know about it. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm probably going to go up there in the morning pretty early. And she said, can I join you? And we said, sure. And it kind of dropped. And then about 4.30 the next morning, we hear this rapping on our tent. (laughs) And it's Anne-Marie and one of her staff members. And uh, my tent mate was Dave Fromm. And anyway, she said, let's go. And yeah. so up we went and it was perfect. There were probably about 75, 80 elk up there. It was kind of a little bit of a foggy, misty morning. And it was, it was just fabulous. <laughs> I, now I have to go back. Ah, fish camp. So in 73, you were CD Baldy and then 74 CD at Cedo. So you went from... This well, I guess fish camp was not interpretive back then. No, no, no. Okay, yeah. So you went from fish camp to Baldy with Baldy Mountain, and then Cedo. So th- all of that's different, you know, different program, different experience. So what was Baldy like? The view up there is fantastic. Just being at ten thousand all summer long, uh, and I'm not. I keep saying there weren't very many campers and how nice that is. I'm not anti-camper, but we didn't have campers in the evening. So that gave you a lot of time to explore, play, just relax, whatever. So that <laughs> that was really enjoyable. Was it a commissary too? Yeah, I all four of my years backcountry, I was commissary. But yeah, okay. commissary, no trading post at the time, but... Uh, yeah. And of course, just all the traffic coming through the snowstorm on the 4th of July. You know, I have the picture. I have a Texan driving up in his Cadillac. You know, I have up all to the Baldy. Normal- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. True story. Scouts honor. <laughs> OK, so what's the story? Oh, he just uh, was out exploring. And, uh, you know, the road was there were no gates at that time. And up he came and pulls up and just starts looking around and wants to be sociable. And we were sociable and he (laughs) 
finally left. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I can't believe he made it up there. Yeah, that's crazy. And okay, did you guys celebrate Christmas in July back then? Was that a thing? Oh, of course. And I, that takes me, I, I have to backtrack on a fish camp story if you don't mind. No, Uh, I don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we did celebrate it every, every, back then. It was Christmas in July. It wasn't Phil Fiesta. But so back in my fish camp days, of course, Christmas in July, July 25th. And I think it was, again, Dave Caffey said, well, fish camp doesn't do Christmas. They do New Year's Eve and they have a fish fry. And I guess it went on for a lot and hadn't been done for a few years. And I just had a fantastic staff. They were great fishermen. And again, we were a commissary camp and we had that refrigerator. So we would go out and not me so much because I was doing the coffee hour, but the other guys would go out and catch fish, clean them, freeze them. Commissary comes, we send fish down to to base to, because our little freezer unit couldn't hold very many. So anyway, we stockpile fish all summer long, and then we sent out invites the first year and said it's the fish camp fish fry. And we had we had a great turnout the first year, but since I was there for two years, we really worked it hard the second year. I had an even better fisherman who just every night he was bringing them in. Sorry, scouts. But anyway, he was <laughs> catching them. So we had about 220 fish stockpiled wow. by, by July 31st. We invited the ranch pretty much. And we had that night, we had every chaplain bring people. We had Joe Davis bring a suburban full of people. And, you know, they were going through a thing where no vehicles in the back country. There, there were so many vehicles parked at fish camp that night. It was, <laughs> it was really embarrassing. We had the gigantic legendary fish camp fry pan and we had a little bit smaller fry pan and uh, we just built our fires down by the Rayado, actually by the Aquafria and we just cooked fish all night. Commissary sent us up corn. They sent us up bread. They sent us up salad fixings. You know, they supplemented everything else. And we had somewhere around 125 people up there for it. So it was it was a great, great party. <laughs> Greg what? McEwen, a good friend, you know, he's got a ton of stories. But uh, just a couple years ago, he dug out one of the invites that we had sent out and gave it to me. So that's in my uh, pile of memorabilia now. <laughs> yeah. Any photos from that? No, I, I, I consider myself a avid photographer now, but back then I just, I think I took maybe 50 pictures in six years. It's just terrible that I didn't take more. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You've got the memories and you're sharing them here today. I don't know if current seasonal staff listen, but we should bring bring the fish fry back. I don't know if base camp will um, store fish for you or if you can catch that many, but here's a good, you know, it's a good challenge. <laughs> there <laughs> See you, if go. you can there you go. bring it back. Did I you love- have the big gigantic fish pan, uh, fry yep. pan? Oh, yeah. I recall that. Definitely. I hope uh, that's okay. still there. It got stolen during my tenure and uh, it's still being investigated today. Uh, there's several suspects. Uh, <laughs> we know whose vehicle was used. Uh, 
but it's still a, still a mystery. Many people are starting to claim they were part of it, but uh, <laughs> the true story has never come out. <laughs> has yet to come out. Maybe it will come out on the show. Maybe I'll interview someone. <laughs> were there uh, any other, you know, fun, mischievous pranks that occurred in your time? I wasn't very inventive. Uh, uh, it's not a prank. Uh, the bear rug at Fish one time was replaced with a a ground squirrel rug that had somehow <laughs> been uh, <laughs> produced. And some advisors loved it, but a couple didn't. And we heard about it. So we got in a little trouble for that. But uh, that's oh, about as far as we went. <laughs> that's That's pretty clever, actually. I like that. Uh, so, okay, back to uh, uh, Baldy Town was 73 and 74 at CEDO. And you said right. CEDO was a commissary then as well as rock climbing? Rock climbing, trading post, international campfire. I think that was it, yeah. yeah. What's international campfire? Uh, they had it for many years. They uh, brought a, an international scout in. I know when Brad was there, he had a scout from Jamaica who was in charge of the campfire. And my scout, I cannot remember the name of the country. I don't think it exists, but it was a small country on the west coast of Africa. And he just led a great campfire. He did it every night. He didn't take a single day off. He didn't wow. He didn't want to leave camp. And Sita's pretty hectic, as you know. And so I felt bad. I mean, I thought I should be over there at the campfire, but he was running it. I got great reviews. I talked to the advisors afterwards. And so he ran it every night. Uh, I think Brad mentioned this last time. Uh, rock climbing was new back then. This was 74. They didn't have the, the climbing experience within. So for us, they brought in two professional climbers from Yosemite, and they had zero scouting experience. I think one had been in Cub Scouts, but uh, but they were really dedicated to running a good program. And uh, then we had some regular other program uh, PC people working with them that they trained, but uh, they just ran a great program. And rock climbing was really new back then, so the scouts just ate it up. So that that was our main show, uh, up to the rocks every day. But it was a big camp. I think we had around somewhere around seventeen on staff, and just plenty of stuff going on all the time. And I had a great ACD assistant director, John Calcaterra. And I think I, he just made life so easy for me. He was, he took care of a lot of stuff and, uh, you know, we're always off going to camp director meetings or something. And I just didn't have any worries whatsoever. So that continued my string of, you know, the hard life because electricity, <laughs> slept in the cabin with the restroom, showers out back. It, yeah. I just, I never roughed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. How did you know that was your last summer? Was it hard to not come back in 75? I have to bring back another fish camp story, but I, after 74, I really thought I might be back in 75 and I was kind of angling to be a sector director, uh, but just the way things job, work, family, life, all that stuff. It didn't happen. But uh, it was after my 
my two years of fish camp, I thought, uh, that's it. I'm done. And, uh, it was my last day at fish. Uh, Nick Pizer was going to pick me up the next morning. He was the sector director. And so I took the day off, actually went up to Apache Springs. I hadn't been up there all summer. Uh, Richard Persico was the camp director up there. Another, another legend. And he, you know, I went up there and he entertained me, showed me everything. We had dinner and it was getting kind of late. And so I headed back, but I went off the ranch. If you've been up to Apache Springs where they take them up for the sunset, well, you hop the fence and you go south and you pick up the power lines that run way out there on the UU bar. And those go all the way back to La Grula. And that's the route I took. And it was getting darker and, and getting darker. And just before I'm getting to La Grula, it kind of narrows down and it's dusk and if you've ever seen the uh, Kevin Costner movie, Dancing with Wolves, remember when he's out there with the buffalo? Again, Scout's Honor Time. I I was headed east and the elk herd was headed west. And they didn't care about me at all. I walked right through the elk herd. I'm no farther than 10 yards away from them. I mean, they're, they're all around me, left, right, <laughs> behind, forward. And honestly, they... They did not care. They, you know, they were grazing and moving at the same time and they'd look at me and I just kept moving and they kept moving. It was the most magical experience. I just couldn't believe it. And it was getting dark. <laughs> so, you know, I was wow. getting a little, little scared or nervous, but sure. uh, wow. anyway, that's when I thought I was done with Philmont. So maybe the elk brought me back or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. I can just picture it and just like how it kind of gets cool in the evening and just kind of one of those moments where you feel like time stands still. So what would you say as a young man at Philmont on seasonal staff, what was maybe something that really challenged you or grew you? And and what would you say was the biggest impact that you took away with you into your, you know, your trajectory of life going forward after Philmont staff? Oh, I think it's just working with, People from all over, different people from all over the country with raised differently, different, not necessarily values, but different ways of doing things, different outlooks on life. And just being exposed to all that, that I think opened me up to just the world. Later on, when I was working, I was in big corporations dealing with people from all over. So, I think Philmont had me totally ready for that to, to just deal with diversity. I guess that might be a good word to use. Sure. So that, and being responsible for people, uh, just those weren't gigantic positions of responsibility, but you did have your staff, you did have your crews. So just uh, putting you in areas of responsibility, I think is what I, what I got from it. Did you meet your wife at Philmont? No, no film romances whatsoever. Uh, ladies, women didn't exist out there. I think, well, I was in the back country when the first lady rangers started coming, but it was rare. Uh, well, they, we did see them, you know, once in a, once in a while at Cedo, uh, nothing up at, up at uh, Baldy Town. So, 
Yeah. No romance, yeah. no romance. Like I said earlier, you've done so much with the PSA. You have been a, a center regional director, a national director, and gone on many PSA treks, volunteer vacations, fill breaks, the whole gamut. Like, what really surprised you about the PSA, maybe? Like, what is something that has really has surprised you over and over again with being involved with the PSA? Well, what what is everybody, I think, the real common theme, what does everybody say about Philmont? It's a beautiful place. The mountains, it's beautiful, but it's the people. That's pretty common. And that's that's what the PSA does, in my opinion, is... Uh, it just continues that that people thing that makes Philmont so special. The people I worked with back in the day, I'm still close with a, a big, you know, several, many of them, but I have met so many, many, many more people through the PSA doing all those treks, uh, many more friends from the treks, uh, fill break and volunteer vacation. It just keeps going. So they say you can never go home again, but you can because you just keep meeting the people that make Philmont so special. That's a good way to think about it because it's sort of like this podcast. Like if you go on a PSA trek, you know, you very well could be with a group of people you don't know, but they all have the common bond and they all have their own stories of where they worked or what they did and how Philmont shaped them. And you get to exchange those stories. I'm sure I've never been on one, but I'm imagining it as really bucket filling in the sense of that camaraderie and sharing the stories and, um, just kind of being in that energy of positive feedback. I am curious about, um, so when I was on staff as a seasonal employee, I didn't even, you know, really know about the PSA toward until later in my, my experience. And I was there for seven summers. So I love how the PSA seems to be more, and that may have just been my experience, but it seems like the PSA is a lot more engaged with the current staff through like the Amigos program and different things. Do you have anything specifically to add to that or speak? No, to I, I think you're exactly right. And I attribute a lot of that to Dolly O'Neill, our past uh, executive director. She just really reached out to the current staff and was there for all the different events, the brought days and just just, well, she's such an outgoing person. I think that's one of the, <laughs> that's really how this is developed. And the fact that current staff now knows a lot more about the PSA, but it's a stated goal. We've on <laughs> many, many a meeting I've been to with the PSA is how do we get the younger staff? I mean, the, the current staff and the recent graduates, how do sure. we get them into the PSA, get them more involved. It's just an ongoing challenge for us. That's what we work at. So I think we've got some younger people that are starting to, you know, volunteer and, you know, want to help out. So that's a good sign. I was on the board for a, a couple of years at one point, and I loved just being in those meetings and being with those people and learning so much more about what goes on in the Philmont Staff Association. And you get to like, you know, get to the behind the scenes about what's going on at Philmont too. So yeah. it really was very rewarding to be able to give back, but continue to get back from the ranch at the same time. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about either fill break or volunteer vacation? The treks are fantastic, but the treks, they, they cost quite a bit of money these days. But Philmont has created these two opportunities. Actually, Kevin Dowling, if you remember Kevin Dowling, he came to the PSA in 2016, actually went to Randy Saunders and said, I think volunteer vacation was something they sort of did up at Northern Tier. Okay. And he said, Philmont needs to do this. The PSA needs to do this. Well, that afternoon, I happened to be coming in for some event. Randy told me about it. And I said, sign me up, you know, I'll, I'll work that program. I'll be delighted to do that. Lee Huckstaff and I were handling the treks at the time. So Lee and I both got started on volunteer vacation, but Lee had some shoulder injuries and he kind of faded, but uh, he was there at the beginning. But anyway, uh, volunteer vacation, it started out, it was just $110 and you're at Philmont for a week all meals, all lodging. It's just a fantastic deal. Uh, the price has crept up just a little to $145. But, uh, you know, a seven-day trek this year is $1,000. But a PSA person can come back for volunteer vacation or fill break for $145. And granted, you're doing a little work, but uh, the theme of both of these activities is give back, give back to the ranch, give back to Philmont. And uh, it's just a, just a great opportunity. And I, back to my theme of people, there's just so many people that have participated in those programs that are just cool, neat people, just like the ones you worked with. So uh, that's what, what I really like about it. I've got to do a, a big shout out to the conservation department. You know, I was a ranger. I'm proud to be a ranger. And I was back country, but I didn't know anything really about cons. And, you know, I've I've been working with cons people now with John Selly when we started the program. And then uh, Mike Crockett has been around forever. Ben Harper, uh, another guy, Alex Rose. And of course, now Lee Hughes, too. Uh, all these people, I, the work effort, the amount of work, I mean, hard physical work they do for Philmont is just amazing. I'm, I'm so proud to be able to work with them. So uh, just being exposed to the entire cons department, I, that's really a great, I think, benefit of volunteer vacation and fill break. So what are some things that you have worked on? Uh, with those two programs, some trails or projects? Yeah, the whole, uh, when volunteer vacation started, the idea was to uh, make use, uh, well, to build a trail to Cedo Peak, because that area of the ranch is really untouched or had been untouched. And, you know, logistics and trip planners, they wanted to get people there and whatnot. So the very first year, uh, that's what Volunteer Vacation did. We started cutting brand new trail that would go, uh, there, there's a trail that goes from uh, uh, from Cyphers up 
and down to a sawmill. And now there's a, a, a leg coming off of that that goes up to the top of Cedo Peak. We actually completed it last year, last September. And uh, we did get some deviations in between. After the 2018 fire, they took us off that project so we could do a rush project to open up another trail. But primarily the focus of volunteer vacation is getting that trail up to Cedo Peak, which we've done. And now uh, volunteer vacation this year, uh, we start on the Webster Park side and go up from that side. We've been camping. You go out, you go out for a week on volunteer vacation, camp, cook, sleep everything and you know go to the work site so you're right there so whistle punk was our base camp which is just a great little camp flat nice flat campsites that's nice <laughs> yeah uh in the woods it's a beautiful area but now we're done with whistle punk and we shift over to webster parks this year to uh they did a little start of that trail last year but now we get real serious on it now nice. Fill break, which is in the spring, of course, in March, typically, it's uh, a mixture of all sorts of stuff. It uh, TSI, which is timber stand improvement, but Lee Hughes doesn't like that title. He likes to call it forest fuel reduction, I think is what he calls it. Um, but through the years, this will be our fourth year now, or we completed our fourth year of fill break. We've done a lot of stuff in terms of cutting logs, moving logs, hauling logs, building slash piles. You've seen the videos, of the big piles we build. And then if we're lucky, it snows and we get to burn them. So we've done things like that. Uh, this year, the uh, 80 acre pasture behind the staff parking lot and uh, across from the villa we burned that uh, and really just a little simple burn like that really makes you appreciate fire so <laughs> yeah. they had a huge number of people out to monitor that and it was, it was really interesting also this year cons was kind of short on people and we were when we were up doing our slash pile building, uh, we were actually getting ahead of the sawyers, the people bringing the trees down. So we had a couple sessions uh, in the backcountry warehouse building trail mills, you know, on the assembly line. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's yep. quite an operation. We had two lines going and it, uh, we were cranking them out. I, I guess the one day that, all the fill break people were there. We set some sort of record, or at least that's what they told us. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's a diverse amount of work, and you just get to see different parts of the ranch, the machine of the ranch function, and, and oh, have, yeah. have a better appreciation for all the behind-the-scenes stuff. And with fill break, are you out in the backcountry base camping too, or are you sleeping at, ba- at actual base camp? No, that, that's the great thing. Volunteer vacation, if you want to camp out, you are camping out all week other than when you come and leave, of course. Uh, true camping out. Uh, but fill break, you're down in base camp, you know, hot showers, roofed housing every night. And then if you're out doing the slash piles, you're just suburban out to the work site every morning. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you if you're not big into camping, come to fill break. If you want 
the beauty of a, a base camp operation and, you know, working during the day, that's great. And uh, volunteer vacation, they bring out just a lot of food for you. It's not trail meals. It's uh, they freeze lots of meat and uh, bring it out in coolers and it just thaws out during the week. So you've got fresh food every night for some good meals. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So in addition to those two programs and the PSA treks you've done, um, including autumn, you've done two autumn treks. Oh, you ha- you need to do a CAV. Isn't there a PSA CAV now? Oh, no, that's one thing I've never done. <laughs> I've taken pictures of them, but I have never done a cavalcade. I, I'm too big for a horse. I've never done a cavalcade. Well, I've never done a trek. So that's my like, I, sometimes I feel like a fraud on the podcast because I never trekked, but I'll get out there eventually. Um, <laughs> but I always thought cavalcades looked so romantic. You can just, you know, kind of not like sit back and well, you do get to see Philmont from horseback, but it is still a lot of work. And I know that especially the, the the treks, you know, the cavalcade treks for the participants, they're learning a lot. But PSA cavalcade sounds like it could be pretty luxurious. So um, what are you excited for for the future of the PSA? I think our growth, that's exciting. Uh, we've got a pretty steady incline. We're 40, I think we're a solid about 4,200. Of course, we get a lot of seasonal staff. So I imagine we'll get up to 46, 4,700 this year. But anyway, just the uh, continued growth, uh, the the brains and talent of our board members and not not me, but I, I'm, <laughs> we've got some great people with our scholarship committees, our finance people, uh, just, there's just a lot of stuff going on. We, we took a little break and we raised money and built our own, our own office and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, I know we'll be cranking out some new projects here pretty soon. So I, I'm real proud of that, you know, looking back at what, the PSA has done for Philmont already. I know that's going to continue. So uh, that's that's what I'm looking forward to. So I'm a lifetime I'm a lifetime member of the PSA, which my my parents gifted me a while back. Oh, so. nice. Yeah. So thanks, mom and dad. What would you say to someone who is not currently a member? Why Why might they want to consider joining? Regardless of how you, I mean, what level, lifetime, or just the various. Uh, yearly, and we have a five-year plan right now that's real economical. It just um, it gets you on that mailing list. It gets your name. We it allows us to keep track of you, and we keep you in touch with Philmont. That's that's the greatest thing about it. Of course, you get High Country, which is a great magazine. Uh, you know our staff. Now we've got Shayla, who's our marketing manager, and she's just cranking out stuff all the time in terms of newsletters and informational stuff. So it just, if if you love Philmont, you want to know what's going on, and that's what the PSA does for you. It's an alumni association. It's there to keep you informed uh, about a place that you love. Of course, we want to try to get a few dollars out of you so we can help Philmont in other ways. But uh, that's why the PSA exists. I'm proud of that. It's an organization that I'm really proud to be a part of, too. I always um, get excited when I walk to the mailbox and um, 
the high country is in there. That's a highlight of my month when I because I still get the like paper copy. It takes a little longer than I think the digital one probably, but I I still like to kind of keep them stacked up on my bookshelf and have them all physical. So, you know, Mark Stinnett, Ed Peace did it for so long and it was fantastic. And Mark Stinnett picked it up and didn't skip a beat. It's just a great magazine or publication for the PSA. It's really a nice thing to get. That's worth the price of admission right there. (laughs) Yeah, I'd agree. And actually, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's won some awards even as far as. It uh, is. Yeah. I I couldn't tell you what they are, but uh, I know they have. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I take care of the treks and that's people that, uh, you know, people want to trek again, but other people, we've got the the fill break and the volunteer vacation. We've got autumn adventure, uh, Stephen and Cynthia Trumper. I don't know if you know them, but they handle the, uh, the, uh, autumn adventure. And, you know, there's always a strong showing for that every fall. So there's just, uh, so much the PSA has to offer that, uh, sign up, come on in, <laughs> join, yeah. come to those various activities. Yeah. Like you said, you can you can go home again, right? So Exactly. So shout out to everyone in the PSA. Thanks for all you're doing and uh, keep it up. So as we kind of close here, Phil, do you have any folks you'd like to nominate to be on the show? Oh, sure, sure. You know, I, uh, I mentioned Bill Shriver. You got to get him online here, get him back. Uh, another great person that came before me is uh, Greg McEwen. Um, uh, Dave Bates, there's another person from the past that uh, I think would be really good. He did so much for modernizing Philmont, so many things he implemented. Another name, Steve Zimmer. Have you heard that name? Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and Steve works with another Steve, Steve Lewis, and they've published some books together, Philmont you know, Cimarron, Northern New Mexico type stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah. He'd be a great one. Great one. Uh, Steve Harmony, I think he was kind of the first organizer of the PSA treks. Awesome. Those are a few names. I can keep going, but, uh, <laughs> well, you can always send me anyone listening. You can always send nominations in anytime via email or, text me or whatever, however you want to get them out to me. I'm always all ears for nominations. So thank you. Yeah. So you, you probably know, I like to ask some fun questions at the end. So Uh uh, (laughs) uh, what is, do you have an 11th essential? Yep. I'm ready for this one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's the MSR reactor stove. It's a nuclear bomb. It heats your water. It's the fastest heating stove out there, documented. They brag about it, uh, similar to a jet boil, but much, much faster. Lee Huckstaff, I mentioned Lee. He's the one who told me about the reactor stove seven, eight years ago. It's just amazing. <laughs> You've never tracked, but you spend so much time waiting for that big eight-quart pot of water to boil. It drives you crazy. and. I like to get up early and I have a MSR dragonfly and it wakes up your entire campsite and it wakes up the next campsite, you know, a quarter mile over. It's just loud. 
So I got that reactor stove and it's just, you don't hear it. You don't hear it. So uh, you can get up, you can grab the bear bag, you can get your coffee going, water boiling, everything, and you don't wake up a soul. And you just sit there and enjoy the morning as the sun comes up and everybody wakes up. So yeah. I can't live without a MSR reactor stove. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an item, a must-have item, especially for those early risers. Of course, you worked on staff uh, in 69 and then throughout the early 70s, and you've been part of the PSA and involved with the PSA since 2005 and on. What would you say is like just the difference in your experiences or something that you've really noticed has changed at Philmont or maybe something that stayed the same? I'm a generalist, I guess. I don't think it's changed. It's uh, There's new camping techniques. There's new gear. But it's it's the it's the same to me uh, thing. You know, we use stoves now. You know, we never use stoves, you know, back in my day. But it's still it's you're still backpacking. It's what backpacking is today. It's what backpacking was back then. It's backpacking. So uh, staff, rangers, it, it's all the same, maybe new procedures and. Uh, more bureaucracy, but it's it's all the same to me. <laughs> Maybe that's why I can go home again. I don't know. <laughs> okay, final question. You can choose between. You can either share your favorite place on the ranch and why, or uh, if you could close your episode with a Philmont-related song, what song would you choose? Or you can do both if you have answers for both. Well, I can tie that all together. Ah, beautiful. <laughs> this, this is good. I, you, I just, it just hit me. Uh, well, my favorite spot, of course, is fish camp. I can't hide that in the slightest. But my first year as camp director at Fish, one of my staff members, and I'm, I'm so embarrassed, I do not have any contact with him, and I don't even remember his name, but he brought a guitar. And this is before music was big at Philmont. It just wasn't there yet like it is now. And he had a very expensive, I think it was a Martin guitar, and it was worth a lot of money. And he was a fantastic musician. And uh, he could play just about anything. But his specialty was Sweet Judy Blue Eyes by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He could play that by himself and he would do it there in the cabin at fish camp for the advisors. And it it was, uh, and it was magical and word got out. So everybody, Rangers coming in, anybody passing through fish camp, any time of the day wanted him to pull out his guitar and play sweet Judy blue eyes. So, uh, uh, that's Fish Camp and Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Uh, <laughs> that's what it is. 